Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. It says, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you preserved it for such a long period of time, that you've kept it intact and that you promised that even as earth will pass away, that your word will last forever. We come to you and your eternal word this morning, confident and trusting and faith that you will transform us and make us more like you, more into your image. Open our hearts and our ears and our minds that we would receive your word and receive your truth for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into the story, I want you to hear it a little differently. It's really short. It's kind of easy to maybe even look over it because it's only five verses. And Mark kind of lends himself to this. He story tells really quickly, scene after scene. And he really only slows down when Jesus begins to teach. He's not a real detailed writer like Luke. So, actually, Mark's storytelling devices are often called comic book devices because he, one of his favorite words is immediately. He uses it somewhere near 40 times in the book. And he uses it in this passage, too. So he's cutting from scene to scene really quick almost like an action movie, or one of those movies that it keeps happening so fast you're not really able to follow the story until like towards the end when it all comes together. And because of that, we can kind of have a tendency to skip right over a lot of the details because they seem like they're not there. But if we'll slow down, I think we'll find a lot under the story. On its face, it seems like maybe it's just the healing story, which is awesome, you know. Even that we can kind of take for granted sometimes that it's Jesus actually healing someone. But take it from me, I've been reading this for several weeks now and letting it soak in. I think we could spend four or five weeks just in these five verses and greatly benefit from it. Uh, but we won't do that. We'll just try to pack in about three weeks in one day. So hope you brought your sack lunch. Now, uh, really, though, I, I wanted to screech. Uh, scratch beneath the surface and see what God's trying to reveal about it ourselves, about himself, his son, and his gospel to us. So let me offer just a couple pointers before we get in uh, into the passage, and we'll kind of pause as we're going through it and look almost verse by verse. How many of you remember reading to your, your kids, or maybe you're going through this right now, or with your grandkids, reading the story and hearing it like strangely as if for the first time 
or maybe it's not with your kids, but maybe in a Sunday school class or with uh, a new believer who's not familiar with scripture. I'll give you an example. Our daughter, Ireland, she's our oldest. Uh, and because this story is about a leper, it kind of coincides. I was reading the story to her about the 10 lepers who Jesus healed, and only one came back to thank him. And we got through with the story, and instead of asking about, you know, why the other nine didn't come back to thank him, she was like, why, why did Jesus heal leopards? And, she, <laughs> and, and then I, it took me a minute. I was like, say that again? She said, uh, why did Jesus heal leopards? Was it their spots? And uh, in one way, yeah, it was her spots, but she thought I was saying leopards. She had no category for lepers. And so I, it was startling. It's, it's kind of funny, you know, to retell that story, but it was kind of startling because I thought, man, how many times have I taken for granted that I just know what a leper is? So the big, the big reveal, y'all can get those pictures beside you. I think there's one on one group of them on your row back there. Um, these are lepers, and as you're looking through them, I'll, I'll continue a little bit, but these are modern-day lepers in China. And because this sickness is so foreign to us, so unfamiliar, um, I wanted us to kind of get the emotion of what really is going on with this sickness. But I also want us to throw off some of our familiarity with Jesus, with the scriptures, with words and phrases like lepers, and really see what's going on in the story, see the types of people that Jesus was meeting and what they were really going through. And that's my prayer for us this morning and really throughout all, this, all these messages as we go through Mark is that we would just be struck with wonder and amazement at who Jesus is. So I think if we don't rush right past it, even though it's fast-paced, uh, you, can, you can really see that these are real people in real situations that Jesus was meeting. And when we're able to empathize a little more like that, I think we can see that Jesus is still real, and we're still real people, and he comes also to our situation. So the big picture, as we're moving through the story, it kind of has three different parts. First, and really most immediately, is that Mark grabs our attention and fixes it on this leper. So for them, they weren't unfamiliar with a category of leper. Uh, they, they saw it a lot. Uh, they saw the damage that it, that it did to people. Um, but they also had to ignore it and shun it. So we, Mark fixes our eyes on the leper. And then no sooner than the words come out of the leper's mouth does he switch the angle and put it on Jesus. So it's like one of those movies where you have a dialogue and you have two different cameras. And you keep seeing the you know, one face and then the other face as they speak. And that's kind of really how Mark gives us this story. He quickly goes between the two. And there's not a lot of dialogue when it gets to Jesus. And then, so as it turns to Jesus, he finally gives us a surprising plot twist, which you may not have recognized when we read across it the first time. But the tension actually escalates as the story comes to a close. So let's just start at the top. Verse 40, it says... A man with leprosy came to Jesus. 
imploring him and kneeling down and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. His condition was defining. Like Literally, even in the story, Mark says the leper or the man with leprosy. Anyway, you look at all the translations, the man is nameless. He's known from his condition, from his sickness. And uh, there's, there's more to the destruction of leprosy than the physical body. There's uh, isolation, which is a lot of people have been experiencing now with COVID. A lot of death, again, which we're, we've come to be more familiar with in these, this past year. And then there's both psychological and emotional trauma, not just from being isolated, but from feeling the hopelessness of years of isolation, of years of uh, medicine that would not work, of seeing others healed of other diseases and not being able to come to full health. This, with this, this is what this man was going to going through. And I brought these pictures not to like shock you or bring about any kind of shame or guilt or anything like that. I just want us to empathize with the emotion that uh, a, a leper would really go through. And while the biblical categories of leprosy probably encompass all kinds of things like psoriasis, uh, eczema, or eczema, stuff that we're more familiar with today, because it's on the skin, because it's outward, even now it's, um, it's isolating. People are forced to wear a different kind of clothing that marks them out, that causes others to ask questions. They'd rather stay alone than be stared at. And this is very much a situation here. In fact, people with leprosy here, if, if you go back to Leviticus 13 and 14, you can see all these skin diseases dealt with. And the law was that if you were going to come out in public, you had to have clothes that identified you. First of all, you had to live outside of the camp. You could live in the community with God's people. But if you were to come near, you would have to have that clothing that identified you, covering your mouth, shave your whole body. And their social distancing was a lot worse than six feet. They had to be 50 paces back. 50, not 50 feet, 50 paces, like half a football field away. And if somebody was near, they would have to holler out, unclean, unclean, and draw attention to their sickness. I mean, they didn't even have to approach the person. If that person came within that distance, they were commanded to call that out. I mean, can you see how horrible that had to be for people? So this man was defined by his condition, and he was confined. He was confined to a life that none of us are that familiar with. But if you take a look at these pictures, these guys are familiar with that. Uh, this is a community in East Asia that we work with, and these are lepers. There's actually a lot of leper colonies today, and it's typically known as Hansen's disease, but and there's, there's several different types. But at the end of the day, it's a skin disease that does cause your skin to, to die. And oftentimes it does appear to uh, not just shrivel up like arthritis, but actually take uh, 
limbs off. So if you, if you saw some of them look like they had nubs, uh, they weren't born that way. It de developed and got worse. And these are in a community that grew up near one of our partners. Uh, his name is Pastor Paul. So we have two really good friends here, Pastor Paul and Pastor Timothy. Pastor Paul lived right down, uh, like downhill from this community. And it's called the Shuangbai Village. And in his whole life, he was told not to go there, not to look at them or talk to them, uh, not, not to go in that direction at all, not to drink water from the rivers that flow from the streams down from it, not to eat fruit off the tree, not to have anything to do with it. But when he was saved, he felt like Jesus was calling him there. And Jan, uh, yeah, 2008, he, he went ahead and went. And when he made his first visit there, it sparked a love in him that caused him to say, I think we need to do this in other places. And so their first visit, there were no salvations. Uh, there wasn't even that much curiosity from my understanding. But they continued to visit. They continued to do all sorts of projects, reservoirs, um, shower stalls, toilets, uh, plumbing, all sorts of different proje projects that show them the love of Christ while telling them about the love of Christ. But only a few came to, to know Christ over the years. And even then, they couldn't speak openly about it because the village elder was opposed. But in December of this year, just or of last year, excuse me, but in December, they went again and showed the Jesus film. And the whole community gathered around. When they started, there was about 25 or 30 uh, that lived in this community, and now there's about 10 or 11. Um, at, there may be 12. I think I counted 12 in one of the pictures. But uh, they are a dying community because they are older. They have this sickness. And the sickness is left alone oftentimes that compound and make other complications. But every one of those uh, that live in that community, every, every leper came to know Christ. And they, they gave their, their commitment to him to live their life for him. And this is an amazing story. I, I wanted to share this with you to show you that God still does meet lepers, that Jesus calls us to these places. And I also wanted you to see up close and personal what a little bit of what leprosy is like. Leprosy didn't just affect the body. It had all sorts of social dimensions that were pretty terrible. And just like in this context of East Asia, these people would have been called thrown away or throwaways. If you watch, a, there's a movie, a documentary called One Child Nation. You should check it out if you have Amazon. It's about the one child and two child policies of East Asia. And they literally are called throwaway babies. And that they even show uh, babies in, in dumpsters, babies on the side of the road. This is the same way that the leopards are treated. There's not a lot of modern, modern medicine for it, but 
it's less to do with the science and more to do with the social dimensions. Because they bring shame to the family, they're left to fend for them, their, their own. They go to this community and they're usually not taken care of by the elders there because they don't have a category for the sanctity of life. Like this is our month where we celebrate the sanctity of human life and we highlight ministries like Life Choices and we give to efforts like that. But in this context, there's not even a category for that. They don't even view themselves as valuable. So there's a lot of turmoil that goes on when you don't see yourself even as human. You see yourself as subhuman. Can you imagine what this man must have been feeling like now after having talked about leprosy a little bit and its implications? Imagine what he felt like sitting there for who knows how long. He was a man, so we're assuming maybe 20, 30 years of living in these conditions. So he was desperate. And he broke every convention. He broke literal laws to come approach Jesus. You notice it doesn't say that he hollered out, unclean, unclean. He didn't put clothes on. He didn't do any of the proper steps. And some scholars have made a pretty good case that there were a lot of communities who weren't really holding to God's law in the right way. In fact, they, while, while the lepers were living outside the camp, they were let to come in and kind of handle business. So it's a good chance that this guy was already disobeying because that's what everyone was doing. He was within the, the 50 paces. But it, it, the, the idea here is we know where he did start breaking the laws, whether this was normal or not. He approached Jesus, and it really happened out of his utter desperation. I mean, you would be pretty desperate if you were in what we've just described too, right? I know I can think of a time when we were desperate in our life, um, me as a dad. It happened when Ireland, our oldest, she's like six now, but she was um, about two or three. And she had, she had been sick earlier in the week a little bit and some kind of bug. But that day she was doing great. She was literally running around and then she just got still and crawled up in my lap and I'm, I'm sure most of you know that uh, when they come with me in the past, being still is not one of her spiritual gifts. <laughs> it's not really in her character to, to sit still at all. She'd rather flip than walk. She's just uh, <laughs> an active, gymnastic-loving little girl. And she crawled up in my lap and just got still, really sudden. I mean, she's like running around, and next second she's like tucked up there, and me and Hannah kind of look at each other, and Hannah's like, what's, what's up with that? She just did that really suddenly. And um, I could feel it. she was getting warm. And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, I think Hannah suggested I check the temperature. And I, I set her back, and her eyes rolled back in her head, and I, I saw her do that, and I was like, she, she immediately went limp in my arms, and I panicked, and we both did and uh, realized she was having seizures and we were in the car like, all that was like a blur. We were just in the car on the road and we didn't care about the law um, <laughs> at all. It wasn't a debate or a discussion or like an ethical question like should we, 
hang on, be before you speed, should we um, consider the laws of the, <laughs> of the land first? We just weren't going back and forth. We were crying out to God. And I was praying, Hannah was praying, and when she would run out of words, she would just start singing praise to God. And, and my prayer was, you know, God, like, you can't be done with her. Like, what, what's going on? And she would go, you know, limp and then, like, tense up. And at some point, I, I put my fingers in there. I know everyone says not to, but um, I thought she could be throwing up and, like, choking on that. So I didn't know what was going on. It was a very helpless feeling situation. And not only did we run every single red light between Sterlington and St. Francis ER and probably go, I'm, sh I'm sure we went 90 because 80's not fast for Hannah. So we, we went fast and we got there. But then there was also a receptionist who was like, hey, uh, you got to come back and go through protocol. You know, and we're like, we will. So we, we took her back there and eventually I think Hannah came out and dealt with that. But the law was not a concern for us. We were desperate. That was our baby girl. And it turned out it was just febrile seizures, which I don't know if y'all are familiar with that, but it's basically when it, uh, your temperature spikes and you have a fever just really suddenly, it, it's like an overload. And especially for uh, children, it's pretty common because their body just can't handle that sudden shock. Um, yeah, you know, the doctors were really kind of callous about it and like, Oh, this happens all the time, and we were like, not to us. <laughs> it don't ever happen to us. And so while it's a different scenario from the lepers, I can see that desperation of just not caring. Not caring what the laws were and going and getting a solution. And this man not only saw a cure, he saw the curer. He saw the person who could deal with it and knew he recognized this is the guy who can do something about it. He had nothing to lose. But his desperation was also coupled with something really powerful, and that was hope. Because think of his desperation sitting there in a community of lepers. We don't really hear about a, a flock of lepers going to him, or even two or three lepers. They were stuck in their hopelessness, but this man, for some reason was allowed to see, hear about, acknowledge Jesus and his divinity and his power and knew he had the authority. You know, there's been a few miracles up to this point, casting out demons. And really, John the Baptist, God and the Holy Spirit at the baptism, and even John the Baptist would come back later and, and doubt. We find that out in the story. But only, so only the Father and the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism, and the demons recognized Jesus for who he was, the Son of God. It was, it's not until after the resurrection that the disciples really, truly, fully understand. And even when they get glimpses of who Jesus is and proclaim him to be Lord, he says, you don't discern this on your own yet. It's the Spirit doing it. So the Spirit has broken into this man's life and allowed him to see and acknowledge and recognize Jesus for who he is. So his faith is to be observed here. Not just his condition, seemingly hopeless, not just his desperation, willing to throw off the law, but his faith in coming to Jesus. And we can see it really in his 
and it's prayer. When he comes to Jesus, he, he falls to his feet. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This should be our prayer. I know you can. You have the power, will you? That should, be, that should mark our prayers for healing. Too often, we fall into these traps of praying where we either go to one extreme or the other. And the one is, we believe in the sovereignty of God, so it ends up being very weak. Our faith is very, very, uh, barely there, barely recognizable. And it can sound like an Eeyore type of prayer, you know, like, oh, well, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, you know. And <laughs> God is sovereign. But the sovereignty of God and our trust and dependence in God should be like gasoline doused onto this flickering flame of faith that we have in us. And it should erupt in saying, uh, us falling on our knees before God and saying, we know that you're able, but will you? This reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They believed in the sovereignty of God and, and his miraculous power. It said, it doesn't matter to us. We know our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. We're not going to bow and worship. We're only worship God. And this is, these are the prayers we should have. They shouldn't be, you know, almost giving up like, well, God's will is the best thing. It really is the best thing. And w- when we pray, we become aligned with that. And we recognize God's will is the best thing for our life. It's not an acquiescence like, well, I want something different, but you know better. He really does know better. And we can trust that he knows better. And then on the other hand, a lot of times we see radical faith, but it's like your desires are the only way. God, you will heal this. You will do this. You see kind of bouncing from one extreme to the other. And really, we should be able to be held into the tension that we can have a radical faith in, in God because God is a radical God. And he is the one that comes and fix, fixes things. We, we think of miracles in this strange way. We think that it's a disruption in nature. But really, it's a putting back into order what God had already set in place. Before the fall, everything was perfect. <laughs> this is how humans were to operate. And when God meets a situation divinely when he intervenes. I'm sure there's someone in here besides me who's been healed from something and instantaneously healed from God. And that happens because of the goodness of our Father. That happens because Jesus meets us and puts the situation right like it should be. And our prayers, our prayers should reflect that. Let us pray like the, like the leper prayed. Actually, let, let's just pray right now. God, help us to be dependent on you. Grow us in prayer. Let our prayers be not faithless, but faithful. Let us be dependent on, not on us, but truly resting and trusting in you alone. Not, not worried about security, but totally comforted in you, in your presence. God, let us not fall from one extreme to the other, but let us fall on our knees before you in amazement 
and wonder at what you can and choose and will do. Thank you for calling us to pray that you want to spend time with us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us a mediator in Jesus. Amen. In this powerful, simple prayer, we see evidence that the leper's recognition of his own condition was overshadowed by God's power and his faith in Jesus. We looked at the, the first character, the leper, his condition, his utter disparity, and then his faith. Now the story shifts over to Jesus. We see that in the next two verses, verses 41 and 42. It says, Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately, there's Mark's favorite word again, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. It's like, again, Mark is shifting our focus rather quickly. And this is where the amazing part comes in. Everything else was dark. <laughs> it was like, you know, black and white, really sketchy film, really sad, right? Like the pictures you looked at, those were in color, but it's bad. And then it shifts really quickly to Jesus. And before Jesus even communicates, it says he was moved with compassion. And this is common, this phrase is common, not just in Mark, but throughout the Gospels. You see Jesus reacting out of this compassion. And it's actually, the Greek word is actually connected to a snort. So I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, I'm, <laughs> let me put it like this. I'm not a very in touch with my emotions type of guy. Uh, I'm more like an emotional juvenile. But I've, I've been in situations where I can empathize with this sudden burst of emotion. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Where words can't necessarily express it, but you just, like, it hurts you. Like, I don't know, maybe it happens when you're watching fail videos on, <laughs> or bloopers. <laughs> like, oh, that hurts. But, but there's a, a lot more to it than just pain. Jesus was so engrossed in this man's condition. He was there. Hebrews says that Jesus, we have a, a mediator in Jesus who can sympathize with us. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's so deeply moved with compassion. And this man approaches Jesus, but he falls, he falls on his feet. Now Jesus turns to touch him. And we recognize it really wasn't the leper who was initiating this. Although he broke the law, he was stepping out. Jesus put himself in his path. Jesus orchestrated this, and Jesus is the one who actually touches him. A lot of the reason for these communities being neglected was contagion. And, you know, if, if y'all have a chance to read Leviticus 13 and 14, um, it's, it's kind of bizarre. There's a lot of similarities in what's going on now with the plagues. Um, and then at the same time, there's a, a lot that's very different because there's a priestly system at work. And so there are these um, elaborate diagnoses, uh, these tests that, that take place where um, if, if a disease is found, the person has to go through the right protocol. And then later, if they think they're healed, the priests will come outside of the gate to meet them. They don't, they don't dare approach. And this, 
this situation, this man has come out, and Jesus is the one who goes out to meet him. He reaches out and touches him. To touch a leper um, was a whole new, whole new definition of what it meant to be human. Uh, if you were a clean person and touched a leper, you also had ramifications for that. You had to be tested yourself to see if you were. And while it, it is somewhat contagious, it's, it's extremely rare. Uh, maybe some of the other conditions that they were calling leprosy could have been more contagious, but leprosy itself is not that contagious. The idea was not just about getting sick. It was purity. It was keeping God's people, God's camp clean. And so Jesus was really giving them a whole new framework to work within. He was showing them a different human response. I mean, when you looked at those pictures, what's your first response to like stare intently into the people's eyes? Or do you think if you had seen them in person, you would, you had, would have wanted to touch them? And, I, and I'm not saying this like it's a guilt or a shame thing. I don't think necessarily I would. It, it kind of pains me to look at those pictures, um, to see somebody going through that. But rather than my pain causing me to look away, Jesus, the creator of the universe, God in, in human flesh, reaches out and touches. Not only is he moved with compassion, he does something about it. And when he reaches out, the man is immediately healed. This is, this is awesome. I mean, it's almost like it should be the highlight of the story, but it just, like, it kind of gets overshadowed because Mark goes on into this dialogue. Jesus, right here, not only was shown his human love, his human empathy, but his divine power and authority. Already he had told the demons uh, to, to leave. And so we know just from their proclamation that he was God from what they said. But rather than Jesus rebuking the man for approaching him, he extends his hand and the forces of death at work in the man are afraid of Jesus, not the other way around. So it's not just his, his, his humanness on display here that causes him to touch the man, but he knows there's no doubt in, in him that he is God. And when he touches this man, the life that Jesus brings is more contagious than leprosy, more contagious than leprosy could ever be thought to be, or any, any other disease. And so the disease is actually afraid of Jesus, because it's a form of death. And in fact, a lot of the Levitical laws that were wrapped up in how to approach these sicknesses focused on that, on this death. There's an interesting book about it called Jesus and the Forces of Death, if you want to check it out. And, and the author makes a case that the community, the Jewish community, truly believed that these sicknesses were connected to death. They even called them the walking dead. And that it wasn't zombie talk. It was because the people literally looked dead. Their skin would turn white and then black. 
um, limbs would fall off. Like they were very openly dying and they resembled corpses to them. And they wanted nothing to do with death. It needed to be outside the, the tent. So the purity was a very important thing to them. And it's important to Jesus too. This is the only person who is pure, totally pure, totally perfect. And yet he touches the man. This is the first time this has ever happened in, in history. And instead of what they were always afraid of happening, happening, which is Jesus contracting leprosy, instead, the opposite happens. And the man is visibly, completely, totally healed right there. Immediately, also. Like, as he touches him, he's healed. It's like you couldn't even capture that on film if you were trying to retell a story in a movie. It's just immediate. So Jesus' divine authority over sickness, over life, over creation is seen right here in this little microcosm. Jesus, he wants to enjoy a face-to-face -face relationship with us. The author of Hebrews tells us that, we read it this morning, that uh, we, because we have a mediator in Jesus, we can approach the throne confidently with assurance, boldly, knowing that he wants our attention. He wants to spend time with us. Jesus wanted to spend time with this man. He was moved with compassion and afraid of the contagion. But it just comes out as this intensity. It, because the man is healed now, the story isn't over. <laughs> it continues to go on. Jesus continues to show not just his loving human response, not just his ability, his divine authority and power to set things straight, but then his priestly role. Jesus shows that he's this man's ultimate priest and our ultimate priest. And it intensifies because instead of the story being over right there, the man being healed, Jesus says, now go to the temple and show yourself clean. And Tim Keller points out a good thing that I never picked up on, and that, that's that uh, this man, Jesus tells him to go to the temple to show himself clean. But Jesus doesn't go to the temple to show himself clean, <laughs> to be verified by the priest. And that in itself was showing people, I am the priest. I don't have to go through that because I am that. I fulfill that. He, fulfilled, he wasn't neglecting the law. He wasn't downplaying the law. He was fulfilling the law and showing how he was the fulfillment. He's both the sacrifice and the mediator. He does the role of the priest in a way that it'll never have to be done again. They offer sacrifices year by year. They even offer sacrifices if somebody was cleansed of leprosy and needed to be verified so they could come back in the community. They were to offer sacrifices, one for guilt, one for shame, and one just that was a pure representation. And Jesus did that. Jesus was the perfect sin offering, the perfect guilt offering. He takes away our shame our fear, our guilt, all everything that came with sin in the garden, he takes it away when he goes to the cross. And not only does he take it away, but now he intercedes on our behalf. 
He's still working on our behalf. Jesus removes the impurity and the man is literally cleansed. He's only going through this protocol so that he can re-enter society. Jesus recognizes more about this man's condition than the man does. He knows that this individual encounter needs to happen, that the man needs to be healed. And by the way, Jesus could save him without healing him. Jesus could save him without touching him. That's how loving Jesus is. That's how powerful and authoritative Jesus is. He chooses to touch him. Jesus could have looked. Remember one time Jesus was walking. You'll, we'll get to this later on, but Jesus is walking and somebody touches him in a crowd and, and he's healed. He didn't even look in the direction. And Jesus, in this case, he chooses to touch the man. Be- and, you can't say because it's taboo, but despite it being taboo, he, he touches the man. And part of that is to show his role as, as the high priest. Jesus saw more about the man than the man saw about himself. He saw all the social dimensions that were at play. He knew that as he was healed and made new, he would also need to be brought into the family again to have community. He saw all the things that he was suffering from from not having friends and family and his a social life. And Jesus called him into that. This, this miracle, it, it can't be understated. And I, I'm about to say here that there's a plot twist, right? But, but it's not to downplay the miracle. This is a powerful, powerful quote, I think, from Matthew uh, Tyson, the author of that, that book I mentioned. He says, The gospel writers depict Jesus as being divinely equipped to deal with the actual sources of impurity. Once the underlying conditions that create ritual impurity are removed, people are free to follow the simple steps that will remove the lingering ritual impurity. The Jesus of the Gospels is the Holy One of God, a man who embodies a contagious power of force that is opposed to and ultimately destroys the powers that create impurity and death. Jesus is the man. <laughs> and not only is he the man, he's, he's God, God-man. And it's both are on display right here for everybody to see. We know that this story is talking about Jesus and this leper, but Jesus was not alone. I think last week, Brendan was here, right? And he talked about Jesus calling followers with him. We know there was something of a crowd there, probably more than a crowd. And they're standing watching this like, He's touching that guy. <laughs> and now he's sending him away, but he's not doing it. And he's not affected. Not only is he not affected, but he just brought this guy total renewal. This guy's going to have a life. He's not just got health. He's, he's got friends and family and community. And it's, it's amazing what's going on here. But do you see the incredible power of our prophet, priest, and king Jesus? His words spoke forth creation. And now he's setting creation back the way it should be. His power sends not just demons, but creation itself. It changes the course of what we see as fallen nature. He's our king. He's our prophet. And he's our priest. And for this man, he was his priest in very dramatic ways. Now the surprising plot twist comes in in these last two verses, or the verses 43 and 44. It says, And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away 
And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Jesus was just giving a wink and a nod to the Old Testament, to the writings of Moses, to the law, to the priestly system. He was saying, I am it. I'm the fulfillment of that. But he also sternly warns this guy. Like This is the first thing out of his mouth. He sternly warns this guy and immediately sent him away and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Like, I don't know about you, but this is pretty surprising to me, especially because, let's see what verse 1 of chapter 1 says, the whole purpose of the book. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus. And a little bit later, um, Jesus tells, tells him that he, must, he came for this purpose. Verse 15, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This was his purpose, to preach the good news, to preach himself. We've already seen it once or twice, and we know, even though we're going through this, you know, almost verse by verse or passage by passage, we know at the end of the book that Jesus' whole purpose and Mark's whole purpose and I'm telling Jesus' purpose is that everyone in creation would hear about Jesus. Hear his good news, hear him, the person and work of Jesus. Why are you telling this man not to tell anybody? And not only that, why are you sternly warning him not to tell anybody? This uh, had me and still has me stumped. Uh, I, I was sitting with Jared here a while back, and I was just like, what's going on? <laughs> what is Jesus doing? And if we seriously read the Gospels, if we take our time, especially Mark, if we, if we take our time going through these seemingly fast-paced stories, we'll, we'll bump into questions like this, and we'll just be forced to be in awe. Like this, this community was standing around like, What's going on? Just shocked at what Jesus was doing. And we know the bigger purpose. Like, what, they, they don't know the rest of it yet. Mark does from his viewpoint, but in the story, they have no idea what's going on. We do, and we're still puzzled. Reading the gospel should leave us this way, just in awe and amazement of, of God, and totally puzzled, sometimes mystified. I mean, that's really what's going on here. There's no good way to wrestle this down and tie a big, big, pretty Christian bow on it and say, this is why I did it, because we don't really know. We know that he orchestrated it. We know that what looked like disobedience on its face was part of his plan. God's sovereign. He, Jesus knew the man was going to go tell everybody. And we knew that Jesus carefully orchestrated his own steps. When, when they come and get him, the guards, and they want to crucify him, he tells them, I'm letting you do this. Jesus is totally in control of his own path. So why not tell about this amazing mis uh, miracle? Like, for us, <laughs> I think we would say, hey, he could be, like, on your Instagram. He could be on all your social media accounts and just be word of mouth. He could really get it out there. Like, this is your infomercial story. This is your guy, like, you just did a real big, big thing here, healing him. And uh, Jesus, 
is not aware, I mean, not unaware that this was a big deal. <laughs> He's aware of who he is and his power. And that's really why he tells this man not to tell anyone. Because already he's been forced out. The story just before he was forced out of uh, the area. And, and at times you'll see him escaping. Like even before this, the, the last section, he escaped to spend time with his father because people were flocking to him. They were flocking to him to get what they could get from him. And that's not entirely bad. It's Jesus. Like we need, we need a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. But as this happens, as people flock to Jesus, he meets them, but he has to have that interior life that he spent time with the Father to minister out of. This is the God of the universe, and he's shown us how we have to operate. We have to have that, interior, that rich interior life with God, that rich communion with him, that when we're, we're met with like a leper, somebody who's a social pariah, an outcast, that we would be so moved with compassion and so in, in tune with the Father that we would be not just willing but want to touch, to reach out, to touch, to pray, to pray, God, I know you can, will you? And to tell them the good news of Jesus. Jesus right here is, is forced out. And some people have drawn a really cool uh, picture of this that, that Jesus traded places with the leper because the leper would not have been able to be with people. He was in, it's even called lonely places. He was in these quarantined areas, these colonies. And now Jesus from here on out is gonna have to go to the lonely places. We see that in the last verse, verse 45 it says, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news, um, uh, excuse me, but to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. Even in the villages, the good news of Jesus was being publicized. It, it was getting out there. Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus didn't want the good news to get out. He had a, a design. He had a plan. He had timing. And this anticipation for a Messiah in the Jewish community, it was reaching this fever pitch. And soon... People's reaction would not be awe and amazement. I, think, I believe we start seeing in chapter 2, you'll, yes, you'll see it soon enough, <laughs> that he ruffled some feathers. There's Pharisees, scribes, um, well-meaning, God-fearing, religious people who miss him for who he is. And that sets us up for the rest of the story. The plot twist is not just that Jesus traded places with a, a leper. That's radical in itself. It's really like a beautiful picture of our Savior. But it's also that now the healing of this one man and his explosion of worship to Jesus and telling everybody. I mean, he told everybody to such an extent. So that means everybody that saw already knew, so he wasn't telling them. Everybody around the, around the courtyard and in the, uh, the temple the temple yard, that whole region, he wasn't, he was, they knew, they could see him, that he was healed. He knew what he was going there to report. So that means that everywhere in between, he was telling so many people that they were flocking to Jesus and tracing his steps. <laughs> they were like, it was like bounty hunter. Like they were, they were chasing Jesus all the way to these rural villages. 
he was no longer in the populated areas and they were still overwhelming him. <laughs> that man knew what Jesus had done for him. And not only did he knew what Jesus had done for him, he knew Jesus himself. He had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. And it resulted in this radical expression of, of Jesus' love, his power, and his, his mediation. His making things right with the Father. His connecting him back. <laughs> what an awesome God we serve. And, and Jesus, he's so unpredictable. Because now, in the outskirts, he's going to meet lepers. He's going to meet a guy who's so lame that four of his friends dig a hole in a roof and drop him down in there. He's going to meet all the outcasts who have been sent to the, not just the suburbs, but the boondocks. And not just those who were sent there from sicknesses and things like this, but those who choose to be there, those who are in the lonely places. And he's going to meet them and he's going to heal them. He's going to give them a new life. The forces of the darkness can't stand against the creator of life. And that's who we have in Jesus. This man's disobedience, which we knew Jesus expected him to tell. Who, who would not tell? And <laughs> like in this room, who wouldn't tell if they were healed or something like that? I think we would be like putting it all over everywhere. Not caring, uh, you know, somebody's going to think I'm a, a wild, crazy person. Who cares? We wouldn't care. We would have less care, like, just like the man when he first came to Jesus threw off all the social conventions. Now he was even more radically uh, opposed to political correctness. <laughs> Not in terms of politics, but in terms of Jesus, the true king. One of my favorite authors has a way of putting this. He says it's like an explosion of joy. I want to read that quote to you. Leslie Newbigin says, there's been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly with, not without justification, and yet it seems that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal but life-giving. That's what our faith in Christ should result in. That's what our meeting Jesus should be like. We should be so full of his joy that it explodes. It comes out of our mouth. I met a guy who, uh, I'd, I'd heard his name, Ambassador, but I'd never met him. And, uh, within three minutes, he was like, yeah, Jesus. And then later on, he, <laughs> he starts telling me a story. Well, I wasn't following Jesus, but Jesus had his hand on me here and here and here. I was like, wow. That's, that's awesome. Maybe, maybe it's because um, he knows, you know, I do this kind of work or preach sometimes or something like that. Well, then I introduce him to a friend, and like, first three minutes, he's like, yeah, uh, Jesus just ra radically changed my life. And this guy knew where he had come from, and not just the darkness of where he came from, but the overshadowing light that Jesus brought into his situation to make his dead heart beat again, to make him alive in Christ to not only for the heavenly father to become his father his true father and to know him that way 
but as his child to then have a family of believers. And Jesus does the same for us. It should result in that, regardless of our personality types. It should be uncontainable what Jesus does. Maybe Jesus didn't turn around and touch you in your leprosy, but you were sick. You were death-bound. I was. We had a condition that was hopeless, totally hopeless. We were born into it, and we were forced out. Ours was a worse leprosy, a spiritual condition that Jesus met. We were bound and pursuing death, and somehow we heard about, saw him, witnessed him because his spirit allowed us to, because he put himself in our path. And when he saw us, he reached and touched us. If you haven't knelt before him, don't hesitate. He can and he will restore your relationship to the Father. And not only give you the ability to cry out, Abba, Father. Not only will he do that, but then he'll give you a family because he's our good and perfect high priest. He's our prophet, priest and king. And for those of you who have received that touch from Jesus, maybe it hasn't felt like an explosion of joy, Or maybe you've gone through seasons where it feels stifled or whatever else. I have this encouragement for us. Hebrews 13, 10 through 14. This is what we're to do. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us, everyone in this room, everyone who's met Jesus, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Let us go outside the gate, outside the camp, family of God, and compel others to come in, to be healed, to meet the man, God, Jesus, to be healed, made clean, purified, and given a new family. Let's be about the Father's business and and grow the family.